Well, good morning, and happy Mother's Day. Um, before I begin, I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to preach God's word to you this morning. Uh, like Wes said, let me quickly pray. <laughs> Father, in the midst of the foggy chaos and confusion of life, we pause. We pause to hear your word to us. We listen so that we might learn to see you in the midst of that very chaos and confusion. So God, please take my words that I have prepared and make them your words to your people. In Jesus' name, by the power of your spirit, amen. In the final installation of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum make their way up the endless stairs to the pass of Sereth Ungol, a passageway that will enable them to get past the guards into Mordor and destroy the One Ring once and for all. While Sam and Frodo rest on the ledge, Gollum gets to work. He frames Sam and makes Frodo believe that Sam has betrayed him by eating all of the food. And then Frodo and Sam start to argue, and after an outburst of anger, Sam accidentally pushes Frodo. After apologizing, Frodo says, I'm all right. No, Sam replies. No, you're not all right. You're exhausted. It's that golem. It's this place. It's that thing around your neck. As the scene continues, they argue more, and Sam cries out to Frodo, But he's a liar! Golem's poisoned you against me. You can't help me anymore, Frodo replies. Go home. If you know the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know the shared journey, deep trust, and special friendship between Frodo and Sam. But at this point of the journey, the burden of carrying the ring and Golem's lies have distorted Frodo's ability to trust Sam. By this point, Frodo has lost his ability to see his situation accurately. He has lost his clarity. And this morning we will continue in our series, After God's Own Heart, where we are looking at the life of David. And in it, we're going to see David in a similar situation to Frodo. David, like Frodo, lacks clarity and is unable to see the situation around him accurately. Now, I doubt there's anyone here this morning who would say that they want less clarity or don't want more clarity in their lives. We want to know why things are happening to us, what to do in those situations, and what will come next. We want clarity. But the problem is is that we can't always see very well. I mean, as most of us know, uh, we often lack clarity. Going through life isn't always like trying to see through a clear window in a well-lit room. It's sometimes more like being in a dark room with only a candle in the corner, trying to find the exit while wearing a mask, while being spun around five times. Yeah, it's, it's more like that. So even though we lack clarity, or even though we want clarity, we often lack it. And so in our text this morning, we're going to look at this idea of clarity. Through David's story, we'll see why we lack clarity at times, how we might gain it back, and what to do when we don't have it. Now, just before you get your hopes up, I don't have a magic eight ball that will automatically tell you all the answers this morning. 
But what we will see is that a person after God's own heart has an orientation of hope-filled submission towards God, even when they lack clarity. So just to give you an idea of where we're going uh, this morning, we can break my sermon down into three parts. After looking at the broader context, uh, we'll see first that sin distorts our clarity. Second, we'll see that community restores our clarity. And finally, we'll see hope-filled submission without clarity. So that sin distorts our clarity, community restores our clarity, and hope-filled submission without clarity. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 14. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 226. So that's 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 14, on page 226. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, who is my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road, while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as we're reading that, I imagine that some of us might have been confused. I mean, we don't probably know what's going on in that passage because we don't have the context. What did David do to Saul's family? Who is Absalom even? And why is David not the king anymore? It's like one of those TV shows that starts out with a really intense scene, and then the next scene transitions to a more peaceful scene and says 48 hours earlier. We just need context to understand what's going on. And to get it, we're, we're going to have to go back 11 years in the life of David. From last week's text in chapter 12 to this week's text in chapter 16, at least 11 years have passed. And so without going into too much detail about all the things that happened, we need to summarize them in order to understand why David is in the situation he's in. So our story needs to pick up where Wes ended off last week. 
As we saw there in 2 Samuel 12, David is told by God's prophet Nathan that trouble will rise up in his house. Nathan says that this will happen because David struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and has taken Uriah's wife to be his wife. So we need to remember this key fact because it's one of the central themes holding this whole story together. David's family will be fraught with violence and sexual sin as a consequence of David's sexual abuse of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. David's sin will be like a seed that, because David has planted it, will now spread to the rest of his family. In chapter 13, there are three more characters that are introduced to the story. Absalom, Amnon, and David's daughter, Tamar. And their story begins this way. David's son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and David's son, Amnon, fell in love with her. Now, it's been a while, but there should be alarms going off when we hear these words. There's only one other story in the life of David that starts by commenting on the beauty of a woman, David's sexual abuse of Bathsheba. The repetition, it's like a sign that points back, suggesting that David's sin, his sexual abuse, and murder will now repeat itself in the lives of Amnon and Absalom. And that's exactly what happens. After manipulating David and uh, deceiving him, Amnon commits an equal evil to his father. He rapes Tamar. We would expect any normal father to defend his daughter and severely punish Amnon, probably putting him to jail at the very least. But David does nothing. In the words of Robert Alter, this is imponderable silence. It's simply doesn't make any sense. And because of this, Absalom takes matters into his own hands. Absalom, by tricking David, murders Amnon and then goes into hiding. Yet even after this, David still does nothing. More imponderable silence. And as the story continues, after three years in exile, David's military general named Joab manipulates David into letting Absalom come back to Jerusalem. But David refuses to see him. And so, as 2 Samuel 14, 28 tells us, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. And because David fails to meaningfully reconcile with his son, Absalom spends the next four years secretly working to overthrow his father's rule. Behind David's back, he secretly wins the hearts of the people of Israel by convincing them that he would be a better king than his father. And then when David hears from a servant that Absalom has declared himself king in a nearby city, he then realizes he has to flee Jerusalem. So he tells his officers in 2 Samuel 15, 14, Hurry, or Absalom will soon overtake us and bring disaster down upon us and attack the city with the edge of the sword. As we saw earlier with the word beautiful, the word sword here, it points us back. It functions as a sign. It points back to Nathan's prophecy of judgment. There Nathan told David, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. David now sees that sword coming. It is a sword in the form of his son, Absalom. And this, more or less, is where our story picks up. This whole story, from David's sin to Absalom's murder and then coup, this is the context for our text. And so, even if you didn't get all of the details of that story, there are two key things we need to take away so far. The first is that this whole mess is rooted in David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and his passivity towards the same sins in his sons. The stories of Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom are the fruit produced by the seed of David's sin. The second thing to notice is the change in David's ability to adequately respond to his situation. At almost every turn, David is either deceived, manipulated, or irrationally passive. This deceived, manipulated, inactive David is a far way off from the cunning man after God's own heart that we've learned about at the beginning of this series. So now that we have our context, let's turn to our text. It begins with an act of hatred. As David flees for his life from Jerusalem, he encounters a man named Shimei from Saul's family. Shimei comes cursing David and throwing stones at him. Shimei does not attempt to hide his hatred for the fleeing king. But there is more significance to these actions than just hatred. His actions are symbolic. Shimei is symbolically stoning David. Every stone carries the same judgment and condemnation that's expressed explicitly in Shimei's curse. And by performing symbolic actions, pronouncing judgment, and declaring divine activity, Shimei is setting himself up as an Old Testament prophet. As Eugene Peterson says in his commentary, Shimei now sets himself up as a prophet interpreting current events for God. But if we begin to look at Shimei's words, we will begin to question the validity of his claim uh, to be a prophet. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Shimei says, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed on, in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. So Shimei, claiming to speak as God's prophet, tells David that the Lord is repaying him for the bloodshed against the household of Saul. From Shimei's perspective, David is in his situation because he has sinned against Saul's family. But we know, as readers, that this is simply not true. I mean, it is close in a sense. David is a murderer. But we've just reviewed why all of this is happening to David. And Saul's family didn't come up once. This situation has to do with David's sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, not any bloodshed against Saul's family. And so while Shimei mixes truth with falsehood, he is still speaking falsely. And this means that we are able to know right off the start that Shimei is a false prophet of sorts. 
In the Old Testament, truth was one of the foundational tests for determining whether or not someone was a true prophet of God. If a prophet spoke falsely, they were not speaking for God. It was that simple. And Shimei fails this test. Deuteronomy 18 even tells us that a prophet who presumes to speak in God's name anything that he is not commanded, then that person is to be put to death. So by this law, Shimei is deserving of death. So, so far, so good, at least for us. It is clear Shimei is a false prophet. The confusing thing is, David doesn't see it that way. In the next verse, one of David's military men named Abishai offers to go over and kill Shimei on David's behalf. And David responds in verses 10 through 12. And in verse 11, David says this to Abishai, Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Now, we need to take a very quick digression here and just try to figure out what is going on in David's mind when he says this. What does he mean that the Lord has told Shimei to curse him? Unfortunately, it isn't easy to figure out, but let's just try to think through it together. As far as I can tell, there are two options. The first option is that David believes God told Shimei to curse him, but he doesn't believe what Shimei says is true. The difficulty with this is that it involves God sending a prophet to speak false words. And if God is willing to send a false prophet, uh, a prophet to speak falsely, then the truth test that God has established in Deuteronomy becomes useless. In the second option, David truly believes that Shimei is a prophet. And because he believes that God has told him, uh, has told Shimei to curse him, David thinks that the curse is true. The difficulty with this interpretation is that David really should know that he hasn't shed any blood in the household of Saul. Way back in the beginning of the series, we saw how committed David was to not harming Saul and his family. And David has even showed countercultural kindness to Saul's descendants by letting them eat at his table. So, where does this leave us? Well, I, I think that ultimately, however we see it, we have to conclude that David has lost his clarity. He has lost his ability to see his situation well. When we hear David's words as readers, ex I think we're expected to find them jarring because the situation should seem so obvious to us if we've been reading through the book. Obviously, Shimei is a false prophet. But David misses this obvious fact. David lacks clarity. We've already seen before this how David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah has changed him. Before it, he was a man of action who could read a situation politically and theologically. But after it, he has become a man of inaction, being manipulated and deceived by those around him. I think this is another example of David's transformation in the wrong direction. Before his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, David could see those around him for who they were. But now he lacks clarity. David's sin 
and guilt mixed with Shimei's half-truths cloud his judgment. David, just like Frodo, is deceived by the burden he carries and the lies of those around him. David's sin distorted his clarity. And sin, guilt, and lies can have the same effect on us today. Sin prevents us from discerning between what is true and what is false. Sin feeds off of our guilt and lies to rob us of our clarity. And in this way, David's story acts as a warning for us that sin distorts our clarity. Now, before I keep going with this, uh, there's one very important thing that I need to mention. Not every moment of unclarity in your lives is caused by sin. So that's very important. Not every moment of unclarity in your life is caused by sin. For example, just because you're having trouble deciding between two jobs, doesn't, it doesn't mean you're sinning. But it is still crucial that we recognize sin's ability to distort our clarity. Sin is deceptive. And one of the most dangerous ways it does this is by blurring the lines between what is sin and what is not. Sin buries itself in our hearts and spreads like an infectious disease that causes rot and decay. And we can be completely unaware of it. Sin distorts our ability to see good and evil clearly. I am learning that for myself, when it comes to being generous, the sin of placing my security in my money has distorted my clarity. I mean, Sabrina and I get by financially, but we certainly don't have much of a security net if something was to go wrong. And so our financial strategy has been to be very reserved when it comes to spending money. Now, being careful about spending money is probably a good thing, but the problem is, is that it has also resulted in me being very hesitant to give financially. Whether it is to the church or someone in need who I've come across in the street, I am very hesitant to give because it is a risk to my security. And so I start to rationalize it. I tell myself, I don't have the money. It's too big a risk. That person doesn't really need it. Someone else will help them. I'm a student. I give my time to God, so God doesn't need my money. God doesn't really even want me to be generous. And so I become Shimei to myself, a mixer of truth with lies. And however I rationalize it, finding my security in money distorts my clarity. My sin of placing my security in my money prevents me from seeing what my lack of generosity really is, sin. As just another example, addictions can be particularly dangerous and deceptive. <clears throat> A pornography addiction, for example, causes people to compartmentalize, if I can say it, their public life and their private life. Because people who are addicted to porn believe that they've separated their public persona from their private addiction, they think it doesn't affect them. And yet, what inevitably happens is their ability to compartmentalize their public and private life breaks down. Guilt takes over, 
and it starts to affect their public lives. As various scientific studies have shown, porn addictions result in a person being more argumentative, they lie more often, they socially isolate themselves, become easily fatigued, and have poor productivity levels. So, I don't know what it is for you today. Maybe it's pride, lust, or greed, laziness, or finding your identity in your work or your family. Maybe it is an addiction, maybe to pornography or alcohol or something else. Maybe it's something else entirely that I haven't even come close to mentioning. But whatever it is, we need to take seriously the warning of David's story. Your sin will distort your clarity. So I know that for some of you at this point, you might be looking at the fact that we're just starting the second point, and, you know, we've already been here for a while, and it's starting to make you worry a little bit. Uh, Don't worry. Um, Now that we've laid the foundation, things will start going a bit faster at this point. So in a subtle way, our text also points us to a way forward, how we might maintain and restore our clarity. I'll look with me one more time at David's response to Abishai in verses 10 and 11. It says, But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Now, as I read it out this time, you may have noticed that David responds twice. At the beginning of verse 10, the text tells us, that it says, but the king said. And then at the beginning of verse 11, the text says, David then said to Abishai and all his officials, um, what, what this is, why it's written this way, is it's, it's a subtle way of telling us that Abishai wasn't convinced by David's first response. David had to uh, try again, in other words. I imagine that Abishai was looking at David kind of the way that Sabrina looks at me when I tell her after supper that I'm only going to have one more piece of chocolate. And it's just not, not believable. But... Um, And so to Abishai, the idea that Shimei is cursing uh, David because the Lord has told him to just isn't believable. And this is important because it, it points to how we can regain our clarity. Under the influence of his guilt and the half truths of Shimei, David believed Shimei to speak on God's behalf. But Abishai recognized the truth, even if we think his reaction might be a bit extreme. Shimei is a false prophet. And this illustrates the reality that often people outside of us are able to see our situation more clearly than we can. This is why, as Wes talked about last week, confrontation is so important for growth. When we are lacking clarity, especially when it is because of our sin, godly people can be a great help in restoring our clarity. Other people, they can kind of be like our glasses. They can take a blurry situation and bring clarity around it. So it is so vital that we let others speak 
into our lives. This is true when our lack of clarity has nothing to do with our sin. When I was trying to discern whether or not God had called me into pastoral ministry, for example, I spent a lot of time talking to people who were pastors and people in the church who knew me well. And godly men and women can also bring us clarity when we lack it because of our sin. While your sin may distort your clarity by mixing lies with truth, godly people can help discern the truth and leave the lies behind. One of the key things that challenged me to reconsider the way that I viewed being generous was Christians of the early church. These people spoke into my life by their example. Many of us might know uh, that the first Christians were poor, yet they were committed to a radical generosity. So while the rich Christians would give out of their wealth, the poor Christians, when they didn't have anything to give and they found someone in need, they would fast so that they could give their food to the people who needed it. They saw something about giving and caring for people in need that my sin prevented me from seeing. Now, of course, it is also crucial that we have people who are still alive uh, to speak into our lives as well. So it's worth asking and reflecting on the question this morning. Who do you have in your life that is able to speak into it? Who do you have who is able to restore your clarity when you've lost it? And then on the other side of the equation, whose life Uh, can you speak into when they lack clarity? Are there people in your life who are looking for someone to speak into it and help them find clarity? If we want to maintain and restore our clarity, we must commit to letting godly people speak into our lives. Our church community can restore our clarity. And yet, the reality is, is that there are all kinds of situations in our lives where we won't have clarity. We simply won't know the answers, even if it has nothing to do with our sin. And so what do we do when this happens? How do we live with a lack of clarity? I think this is where David can be a model for us. Despite his lack of clarity, he is willing to submit to God and his circumstances. Uh, Look with me at verses 12 and 13. David says, It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. I mean, certainly here David still lacks clarity. Notice how he says God may look upon him. He's not confident that God will notice his misery and restore him to his covenant blessings. Um, In other words, David isn't confident that he'll one day again sit on the throne of Israel. He doesn't know how his story is going to play out. And it isn't surprising that David would feel this way. Earlier that day, he was sitting on the throne the most powerful king in his nation. And now he is fleeing from his son who would kill him if he had the chance. And all of this is David's fault, whether indirectly or directly. And now, to top it all off, 
this guy named Shimei just comes along showering the fallen king with dirt. In the midst of this guilt, of this confusion, and this loss, it is not surprising that David questions God's favor and his future. And yet, David recognizes that whatever his future holds, he is dependent on the Lord. As one commentator puts it, David could only trust Yahweh's ultimate purpose, even though he did not understand the meaning of the affliction. Only God can restore David to the throne of Israel. So David submits to God, whatever else is in store. And I think it is easy for us to feel like David. As we've seen, we can lack clarity for a number of reasons. And so maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've been weighed down by your guilt and shame. Or perhaps your life is full of confusing circumstances that have nothing to do with your failure. Or maybe you've suffered significant loss and you just don't know what's next. And like I said at the beginning, I wish I did, but I, I don't have a magic ball that will tell us what the answers are um, or why certain things are happening. Every situation is different and there are often no easy answers. Talking to godly people in the church can certainly help restore clarity, but at the end of the day, most of the time we will still lack answers and absolute clarity. But David displays a God-oriented disposition that is vital for us to have in every situation where we lack clarity. Even in the midst of his swirling chaos and confusion, David shows that a person after God's own heart has an orientation of hope-filled submission or submission towards God. So let me say that again. A person after God's own heart has an orientation of submission towards God, even when they lack clarity. But there is some good news here that we have that David did not. David was not sure, as we've seen, how his story would play out. He did not know if he would return to the throne of Israel. However, we do know where our stories ultimately end. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8 as we read out this morning in our responsive reading. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then a few verses later, he writes, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to to his purpose. If we have faith in Jesus, we can know with absolute clarity about our ultimate end. Jesus' death and resurrection guarantee our glory through resurrection. And as Paul writes, our present sufferings aren't even comparable to the greatness of the glory that will be revealed in us. So even though we lack clarity of all sort, in, uh, in all sorts of ways, we can know with certainty that God is working all things for our good in glory. And it is this confidence, this clarity, rooted in Jesus' death and resurrection, this is what empowers us to live 
with an orientation of hope-filled submission in moments of unclarity. I can give generously and wisely because I know that I have ultimate security in God, even if I lack clarity in the moment. Jesus' death and resurrection empower us to live with hope-filled submission in moments of unclarity. And so, whatever your situation today, wherever you might lack clarity, my prayer is that David's story has spoken to you, that through it you would see the deceptive power of sin, guilt, and lies to distort your clarity, that through it you would see the value of godly community, men and women who can help restore our clarity when we lack it. And most of all, I pray that it empowers us to have an orientation of hope-filled submission, to submit to God even when we lack clarity, because we know with certainty that on account of Jesus' death and resurrection, God will work all things for our good in glory. Let us pray.